0: Hello listeners, I'm Sam with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and tsleil peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall is joined by Erica Lata, Assistant Professor in Theatre Performance at SFU's School for the Contemporary Arts, and the Artistic Co-Director and Co-Founder of Wax Factory in New York. In this episode, Erica explores her appreciation for boundary pushing in the arts, her vision for SFU's theatre program, and her journey as a theatre maker, including some memorable experiences she's had while touring across Europe. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again. This week we have a special guest. Uh, Erica Latta is here with us. Welcome, Erica.
2: Uh, uh, thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: Yeah. Erica, I wonder if we can begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit.
2: Well, currently, I'm an assistant professor in theater performance at Simon Fraser University at the School for Contemporary Arts. I also have a devised theater company called Wax Factory that began in New York. And I also work with a site-specific company called Beat Theater in France and among other companies.
1: Erica, you've been on faculty for year or two now Is
2: that? almost three <laughs> almost three okay well there was a
1: pandemic in the middle so it's hard to keep track of, of time uh wondering if you can just share how you first of all got involved in in theater like did you were you like four and playing charades and you just kept going uh, where did it all begin
2: huh that's a interesting question both my parents are a visual artist and they came out of cal arts which was was called chenards back in the day and i think you know at an early early age uh, i was mixing and combining forms i think i think the first first moment i knew i wanted to do live performance I, my parents had many friends at that time and there was a couple of artists navajo and hopi artists that they were hanging out with at that time so we went to see kiva dance and when i was 5 years old and which we were invited to, which was rare. And we went and I saw the kachina dancers coming out of the kivas. And there was this sort of rhythm and footwork. And I thought, wow, what is that? That's something spiritual, something I didn't understand or know. And I thought, oh, I want to be involved in that <laughs> visceral feeling. I think there was that first impulse that came at me. And then I remember my parents lived in the woods in Oregon with the geodesic dome and a um, log cabin with no running water, nothing. We took a bath and a 50-gallon drum. And there were these you know, crazy artists living out in the woods off the grid in Sun River, Oregon. And I, they, we didn't have electricity, but we would Drive. He, we had an old pickup truck, and my dad would open up the car and turn on the radio and leave the engine on, and we would listen to music. And I remember listening to Odetta and Billie Holiday and uh, Stevie Wonder. And they would often talk about Alan Lomax recordings, uh, early recordings. And there was uh, – I wanted to be a singer at first. It was just a – Visceral, powerful energy that were behind the words that were, that just drew me in. And I thought, oh, I want to be a performer. That's what I want to do. But I didn't know when that was coming. And in the meantime, my parents were teaching me about the fundamentals of art. They would correct my doodles at five years old. I'd sit with them for long hours in the field. Uh, my dad's, you know, a painter, and he would talk about light and shadow and where you, place your, where you place a figure in, in the frame. And I sort of translated that later w- uh, with my body, where I put my body in the space. So I think it came from a little bit of my parents' observations of the world and on um, those early influences of music, dance, and the kiva, the experience of the kivas.
1: When you were doing your BFA, I know a number of students will likely be listening to this um, episode, but can you describe that period when you were doing theater as an undergraduate?
2: So first, I, I'll just back up a little bit. I, I studied dance before I went and, and was at the University of Washington. And I got in on a volleyball scholarship because I um, didn't come from a lot of money. And that was my way in to get into the University of Washington. But then I quickly learned I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go over to the art department. Uh, So I started taking sculpture, uh, installation art, and I was doing dance. And then I heard about the acting program, and they were doing Suzuki Method of Acting. And I auditioned for that, and I think I did an Arthur Miller piece uh, as a monologue. But I played the male character as a a woman. I can't remember which text, (laughs) forgive me. And I got into that. And so then I was mixing and combining all these forms. And also my installation professor said, you know what, you need to go over the performance. Because I was doing these weird, I don't know, hybrid pieces. And he didn't know what to do with me. I was, you know, making pieces in a pool and using musicians and doing installation and combining kind of performance and he sent me over to the theater department because I don't think you know what I I was up to at that point. They weren't kind of doing that. And so, uh, yeah, I went to University of Washington and I spent a lot of time with the Suzuki method of acting with uh, Robin Hunt and Steve Pearson and that led me to Japan. And while I was in Japan, I met Anne Bogart, who is sort of, she does the viewpoints method. Which was taken from Mary Overly, who was a contemporary dancer. And I met her and I thought, oh, that's interesting what she's doing. And it has the history of dance in it. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. And so that's led me to graduate school at Columbia University.
1: Now, in terms of you know, having an, an interest and a background with these different artistic disciplines, uh, what did that bring? into the acting world um for you and wondering if you could share for our audience members who don't know the suzuki method or the other one that you mentioned if you could um, talk about them briefly as well
2: i think you know coming from that background i i was always interested in not having art be compartmentalized i learned from an early age that it was all a part of it and the more you knew from this sort of bespoke lens into the work the more you could articulate the world that you were creating and and also not define it so it could shapeshift. It doesn't have to be in a theater or it could be in a building. And that interest was always there when I was, when I was younger. But when I got to the University of Washington, I was sort of making my own school for contemporary arts. I was combining these forms and, and, and you know, running across uh, the, the large campus and, and trying to figure out how all of these sort of artistic forms work together. So when I came to the viewpoints, which is very much about improvisation, looking at tempo, duration, kinesthetic response, repetition, I was like, oh, this speaks the language of music, of dance, of visual art. Also, I was interested in archaeology at that moment. And I always feel like I'm a bit of a detective uh, trying to figure out how do these kind of forms move together and work together. So that's very much in that sort of spirit of, of viewpoints and looking at the basic components of composition. And then you have the Suzuki method of acting, which is training your center and having that 360-degree awareness on stage and also tapping into something that's visceral, ancestral, and about rigor and the discipline that it takes to, to be on stage. And that it's interesting because it comes from the stomping in the kachina dances there's something that I found similar and a and a relation. When I went to Japan, Tadashi Suzuki's company, he he started this method because he wanted his actors to be a little bit more stronger on stage. And so he he devised this um, set of movements that are you can be in the best shape and you still are sucking wind when you're when you're doing them to get this this um, to be able to to speak from your center, to have this 360-degree awareness, and to also sort of change time and space. And both the viewpoints and Suzuki Method of Acting are kind of looking at that. How do you change time and space within a live performance, among many other things.
1: (laughs) Uh, Now, when you went to um, grad school, so you were uh, over at the East Coast at Columbia, um, what did you find interesting about grad school? Because I imagine uh, by the time you went, you had already been out. Um, working and performing in various contexts, uh, but uh, kind of your road into into grad school.
2: After meeting Anne Bogart, yeah, I, I went to New York and auditioned, and grad school was a continuation of an investigation I was already, you know, well under. But I also bumped into the Worcester Group there in the summers um, and also worked with Robert Wilson in the summers as well. And I just started to see different ways of constructing Live performance, and that opened my eyes. But it also confirmed some things that I had in within me, and that was really great to be like, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm, I am. Um, I was always the sort of the crazy one in the in my cohort, <laughs> and often being like, you know, Erica, is that acting? You're using a light, and you're using some strange uh, text, and you're using some. I don't know, installation and uh, or you're removing the performer or what have you. And i sort of validated at the same time. And I was working with uh, Robert Woodruff, wh- who was there. Andre Serban was there Anne Bogart and many other different sort of faculty who came in and out. And even there, I was also a little bit on the outside. I was a little bit wild, and I met. Luckily, I met two other people that were um, like-minded, and we started to form a company to got together called Wax Factory. When we graduated, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, no, it
1: totally does. And I was going to actually ask about Wax Fac- Factory um, next, and wondering if you can sort of speak to its formation and what you trying to do because it's a prolific body of work you've all done together.
2: Thank you. Yeah, um, well, I think first it was Ivan Talianchich who was in the company and also a graduate student um, in directing was at Columbia and Doris Murescu. And then Dion Doulis was coming out of an NYU film school. And we all came from different backgrounds into live performance. So I think the impetus to form the company was, we didn't want. We wanted to be shapeshifters. We didn't. We put ourselves under the the uh, roof of of theater, even though, because it was the only place that we could combine all of those forms and 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 keep questioning what 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 we w- wanted to do or where we wanted to place that work. And so I think it was out of that love and that combination of, of people we started to form the company. And I think we were in New Jersey once. We were coming up with a bunch of names for our company, and they were really awful, and they were really pretentious. And then we saw this old Windsor Wax building, and it said Windsor Wax at the top, and at the bottom it said Factory and I went out there and I was looking at it and I was like, oh, wax factory, wax factory. And then we're like, oh, yeah, it's malleable. Wax is malleable. It shape shifts. It's not just one thing. So we named our company that. And it was also the first lights on the stage were candles. And so we started that. And then we, we started to learn how to write grants and it'd be administrators, and we didn't know anything what we were doing. Um, I have a lot of wild stories about that. <laughs>
1: yeah, so uh, during that period, what sort of uh, some of the more interesting places that you performed your work at the wax factory?
2: At the same time, I also started to know Begat Theatre, so that also took me to Europe, and Ivan is from the former Yugoslavia. So we went often to Sarajevo, and then we started to meet artists from Slovenia and Ljubljana, and there was a tour we did of Heiner Mueller's quartet, which we were in this sort of plastic <laughs> box, and we had um, all the lights underneath it, and we created this sort of enclosed um, stage, and we had, like, tubes coming from our from our backs and video cameras on the outside, and we were doing sort of this sort of self-surveillance of Mertoy and Valmont. And we toured this piece to split... And then we went to Dubrovnik in in Croatia, wow. and I guess that adventure was crazy. We were in the Diocletian Palace, and we were performing that piece. And there was a, the floods that year, and there was also a lot of fires because the there were still bombs planted in the um, in the terrain, and they were going off because of the the, the heat. So it was just this tumultuous sort of year of floods and fires and we were performing in the um, Diocletian Palace and the rains came and and we were performing the opening night and the this water starts gushing through the Diocletian Palace and we're in full makeup and we're ready to go on stage and uh, all the lights are underneath the stage so we so everybody's like our eyes just like got Bug-eyed, and we were like running towards the electricity to shut the electricity off, and we couldn't perform. And the next we so we the next day we spent like cleaning out all of the electrical <laughs> sockets and everything. And the next day we performed, and there was this weird like fog around the set, and and we and it was beautiful, and we performed the Heinrich Müller's Quartet, and then we got the reviews An eerie, <laughs> you know. <laughs> breathtaking, blah, blah. And we were like, yeah, no. <laughs> there was like, and I don't know what was in that muck, but we, all our costumes were like destroyed. And then also, and then on the way, I think in another piece, when we performed in Dubrovnik, we were performing Lulu based on Frank Vedekin's, um Lulu, or inspired by, and we had to go through the fires to get there and then perform in Dubrovnik in an old sort of hall there that was a stunning place. But yeah, and then also performing in uh, Sarajevo, uh, which many artists uh, during the war formed in, Susan Sontag, etc. And experiencing, you know, performing in Sarajevo and seeing a lot of bombed out buildings. And also in Dubrovnik, we performed there and we were in an old hotel that had been bombed, which has ha- has a lot of history and a lot of weight and coming in, you know, you know, just sort of into... To the environment and being very respectful of what had gone before, and and performing a very dark, deep piece about uh, love and the sort of apocalypse in Heiner Müller's <laughs> quartet. So yeah, I think I think I don't know. There's many. Um, uh, also, we've performed a lot with Begat Theater, where like we're in some you know field and a bunch of mud, <laughs> and, you know, pushing platforms around and. So Begat Theatre only does work um, outside or site specifically. And I started working with them through Dion Doulis, who who had worked with them for several years. And they asked me to direct with Dion a piece by Janet Frame, which was a novel called Scented Gardens for the Blind. And so It was my first time to work in France and I didn't speak French (laughs) and I just went over there and we adapted the uh, novel and we worked with 10 French actors and I don't know for how many months we were in this field um, moving these large platforms around. So when we were in France, I, I had nine actors who all spoke French and I didn't. And so I had to learn French really fast. <laughs> and Luckily, Karin Holmstrom, who is the director of Begat Theatre, is from Portland, Oregon. And so is uh, Dion. but they're both living in France, spoke French and helped me through the process. But then I learned French and um, started to work with them on that piece. And then we started to do more site-specific works and sound walks. Um, and I started to, to um, design sound for their pieces. And we toured... For several years the Leja Jardins aveugle, the blind garden. And then we moved to Hidden Stories, a sound walk that's kind of inspired by Sophie Call. And then we worked on another piece called La D'Espression, and then this new piece that we worked with in Portland called Homeland, another sort of installation site-specific audio walk with actors.
1: <laughs> uh, in in terms of, you know, the different disciplinary interests you have and walking into theatre, there seems to be a through line that the the conventional forms of theatre is something you resist in the way that you work. And I'm wondering um, in terms of uh, you know what does site specificity uh, bring to the table? like how does it make you think differently in terms of approaching a work being outside of um, a, a theater context i've been I've been to Kashmir where they do Bon Panther theater mm. where I saw and and a part of an adaptation um, that they were rehearsing about King Lear, and it was really about. India and Kashmir and property and of course the, the actors were male not women uh, in, in the c- context there and so I've seen you know various kind of places and place I've traveled and the Balkans is such a, a beautiful amazing uh, place as well like in terms of where you where you've been but wondering we could talk to these type of experimental practices and breaking theater outside of the, the, the stage kind of what you find intellectually and artistically compelling about that.
2: I don't think about, actually, when we're working, if I'm working with my company, Wax Factory, when we start to dive into the work, we don't know where it's going to live yet. And I think we keep that question open. Sometimes it will be in a proscenium theater, but other times I just feel like we're looking at that ecosystem of collaborators and we're looking at the the material and we're playing this role of the the detective again and saying okay what what is this how is it speaking to us and how is it speaking to us now in this time frame and we sort of listen to the material as much as we can and then there's also budget and time and <laughs> you can put it and what grants you can do and what dance you're you're been asked to dance funding wise and then we listen to that and, and and then we see where does that material want to live. I want to say that first and foremost from my, from my company's side. And then with BeGAT, they always want to work outside site specifically. They don't want the walls of the theater determining the work. So that has been great awareness as far as how do you work with community? How do you engage with the site that you're working with? how How could you take a a text or a novel, and translate that to the street. You have to beckett everything down. I would say, because there's more to look at. The frame is larger, and then how can you create a close-up in site-specific work? You're you're oftentimes very close to the person, or there's a one-on-one. That's your, that there's the intimacy of it, and then there's this sort of wide frame of the city, which you're constantly negotiating. As well, you can, in, you know, indoors as well. But I think the site has taught me a lot about editing down material because you can't put a, a long text in the street or in headphones because people will lose lose it. Or there's a car going by and it's like, it you know, so there's a different kind of listening. And there's also this beautiful thing that we've discovered is sort of this live cinema outside where the whole whole city becomes the possible stage and the possible players and by this sort of putting a certain kind of pov on it you can enhance the world or make point out something or give empathy by just the sort of positioning where you are within within the, um, the street and I've learned that I think it's really important, like as if you're an actor, you learn, you also direct, you can learn better how to be a better actor. If you're you're acting, you understand how to be a better director. And also when you do site-specific work, it, you, you open up different points of view, different observations in your craft, and you sort of can use one or the other, whether you're working inside or not. Or if you're doing sort of immersive piece in a building, how does that? How is it different? And I think what you really think about in site-specific work is the audience's journey and mapping that out. You're very strict about how that is because you have to take care of them. There's a car going by and you have headphones and how, how do you do that if you're doing that kind of work? Or the audience's path becomes integral into forming the work and the site with which you're working off of and that sort of not doing just a one-off into a space, but that you have a dialogue with this, with the area that you're working with or the community that you're working with. That has been very fruitful and eye-opening, and also you have to slow down a bit. On your working site specifically.
1: Mm-hmm. We just had a performance on Sunday with uh, Karen Jameson Dance, who she's been running a, a project called the Carnegie Dance Troupe, who are from their mid-20s to mid-80s residents of the downtown east side. And they rehearsed out of the Carnegie Center and out of the World Earth Center at, at SFU. And more recently, they've been doing the performance at SFU. But when they started them several years back, they would actually go from Maine and Hastings down the street snaking through with you know whatever dance work that they were doing and of course there was no permits there was nothing and these cop cars would go by and kind of like look at what's going on you didn't know if it was going to get shut down or not but the cops didn't know how to read it but people were from the neighborhood so they people kind of recognized them from around so it didn't cause any major disturbance mostly people followed and were really supportive but you kind of you know when when you're dealing with sight you kind of don't know what's gonna, gonna happen and that's part of the Stakes of the work, in in, in some sense uh, as well. I'm wondering, you know, in in the different um, ways that you've worked, and in collaboration around interdisciplinarity, and being at a school that also is kind of focused on interdisciplinarity, particularly in the in the grad program. I'm wondering how you. Um, look at it. You, of course, studied these different things, but in terms of making a work and these opportunities to collaborate with people in different disciplines and contexts um, is, as is well, how you approach that process. In, in the way that you spoke about uh, when you're working with your colleagues, that you actually don't know where the work is going to go in the process. Very. Uh, Liz Lerman was here about seven, eight years ago, and she has a professional dance practice and a more community social practice based one and and a student asked her that question and she answered it very similar to you it's like she doesn't know where the work is going to go and sometimes it's more kind of a community project in a way and she talked about working with former veterans who had lost limbs and people assumed it was going to be kind of a social practice piece done in community theater but she had people like eight hours a day rehearsal it's going to be on the stage with lighting because that's where the work needed to go Uh, so that was that was not the answer people (laughs) were expecting right Um, but it was super interesting because she she did have this sense of like um developing and proceeding with the work in a particular way and giving it a certain aesthetic or social quality in the process of the making of the work.
2: Well, I think you know you have hunches and you have visions when you start out, but I don't always know cuz every time you go into the room you're like, "Oh god, how am I going to be able to do this?" And I've been doing it for a long time, but I still stare right at the unknown. And I just have my questions, and all I, I have some weird image in my head, maybe, or you know, I always get my ideas in the shower, and you know, I just start thinking, okay, this piece might go next to this piece, and I start rearranging like a kid those objects and ideas and try to trust my first hunches and listen to my collective because they have beautiful, far probably far more beautiful ideas than I do. And I just sort of try to make those things kind of happen in the room and also encourage I encourage those first hunches definitely in my students or not to second guess themselves. So like, why do I have this weird idea? And why is it coming off of this particular material? After I read this, I have this idea. And I think that you just have to get all those first hunches in the room and and sort of play with them and then start to edit them later. And then in the middle of that process, you will doubt yourself. You will think, why am I doing this? I hate it. This is painful. (laughs) And also it's joyful at the same time. So there's a strange mixture, but I do feel it's like, yeah, it's like a strange collage. And some things that you've been ruminating for a long time will come back into the room. And you don't, and it doesn't fit in one piece, but it fits in this piece. <laughs> so there's always this kind of past and the present mixing in, in there. But um, interdisciplinary, yeah. Um, I don't know. Do we like that word? <laughs> yeah, yeah no, exactly. Do we like that word? I, I, I think it's I would just call it yeah, intense listening to the elements of what you dragged into the room, you know. And how do you how do you keep listening when you actually when you know you've been doing it for a while it's a little bit harder. You know, when you're younger you have your ribs open a little bit and you're and you're not so much in in judging yourself, I hope. <laughs> but um um yeah,
1: I was going to ask you about this adjusting to teaching, becoming a, a professor. You've taught before, but coming into like a job, job type job, and and how do you maintain artistic practice while being a professor? This is the age old question, of course. And uh, you know how do you how do you manage that? Because you're you're an artist at heart who happens to teach, but. You have those artistic impulses and kind of, I guess it's a a part of the the feature of this school in particular, where people do have an active practice, how you manage all of those things or not manage them for that matter.
2: I wonder what I can say off the record. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'll first say, I don't know how I manage as a single mother. Um, I don't think um, it's set up for single mothers at all. Um, So I'll say that. I don't know how I manage anything (laughs) sometimes. But as far as, yeah, I'm a practicing artist first, I would say. And I'm learning what academia is. And I'm also trying to open the cracks of academia. I'm still balancing that out. I definitely think that that's an interesting ride. And I also know very well that when I come into the room with my students... I think of them as all emerging performers and creators and creative thinkers. I have to think sometimes, okay, yes, I am, I am guiding this, but I feel like we're in the room in this dialogue together and with maybe not the same experience, but but experience nonetheless. And um, we are learning off of one another. And I'm just sharing my experience and saying, take it take everything you want from it and bind your own book and find your own process and artistic voice in that. So... Academia sometimes can be restricting. It takes a long time to approve something <laughs> in a meeting. It drives me crazy. I don't know. I'm sure Elspeth will, um, Elspeth Pratt will get on my case for saying that. Um, but she I think probably she'll probably agrees agree. With agrees. You, yeah. <laughs> she agrees. Um, so I'm learning the, the role, I'm learning the environment of academia and how to push inside of there and also learn from my colleagues and balance my professional life with my personal life and encouraging these incredible amazing young artists of the future and i'm learning actually i'm learning a lot from them and i hope (laughs) i hope they'll learn a little bit from me
1: in In terms of the the theater program itself, I know that you have some new colleagues, et cetera, but um, if there's anything you'd like to share about kind of your vision of the of the program because in a way it's kind of being developed and new things are being thought about for students who might be or prospective students who might be thinking about uh, coming to SFU to study what is the kind of specificity of the of the program here at SFU.
2: You know, Ryan Takata and I and Stephen Hill sat down and thought about, you know, where do we want to take the program? And we also thought about, well, what is contemporary? And we came up with these sort of streams that we thought were today, what we thought was important about live performance. And we talked about social, we talked about digital and new media. We talked about live acts, and we talked about environment and which is a site-specific work or immersive work, or looking at new environments and and performance in environment environmental situation. And we just got excited. We just sat around and like, you know, Steven sort of talked about what SFU and the School of Contemporary Arts was before. And Ryan and I were, new and also naive which I might help might have helped and we we thought okay how do you survive and and now you have to know many different elements many different fields you have to be a shapeshifter you have to be a creative thinker and so we thought about how can you become a creative thinker well it's not just about acting it's not just about directing it's not just about lights and sound it's about all of those things and all of those combinations and we also wanted to have practicing artists in the room first and foremost and i think that's the mission of the school for contemporary arts in general is having well-rounded versatile makers and so we just pulled back and looked at that and And risk takers and for students to be able to be rigorous, to be able to define their process, to be able to articulate it and document their work and be excited about that and step out of the School for Contemporary Arts, not waiting for anybody, but to make their own work and to maybe form companies of their own. Of course, we all know that you're going to have to do side jobs. We all did them. And I did them. My Oh, man, I've been looking for quarters in my pocket. I don't know for how long. And I still do. I have that survivor technique. You know, I'm always, um, well, if this doesn't go well, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm going to start collecting cans on the side. Still, what, what, you know?
1: what are the odd jobs that you've had to do on the side while you were in your more experimental phases where the money wasn't coming in?
2: Oh my God, I've done everything. A lot of a lot of catering, a lot of waitressing. I've done, oh my God, I used to do these things where you pack gifts for, for Christmas, you know, and you're in this weird room in New York and you're like making these weird gifts or I've, you know, always keep your books and keep the labels on your clothes because you can resell them. I've been at Strand many times, Strand bookstores selling our, our art books and asking other people, you have any art books you don't want, or doubles? and Or I've been a personal assistant many times, worked in galleries, worked in production offices. I've also, oddly enough, you know, when I was in Sleep No More, I started to know the team there and they asked me to lend my mind to a project with, I think, I don't know if I'm allowed to say Samsung, to do sort of like something that was commercial at the same time, but innovative, like immersive theater. And that was interesting to me is that you can sort of take your creative mind and I I often one time I got interviewed for ad agency I was like what am I doing here (laughs) but I was like oh yeah actually this would be interesting I could I could I could do some commercials I could I and then I started I have a I have a whole book of of possible commercials just in case I need that (laughs) I think also as a as you know when I got this job I've never had that sort of you know I've taught other places but the stability of that well, you're never really, you know, you're always up for review. But there that stability never existed. And and you have to be okay with being spoon-fed the unknown. And you ha- you're that's your makeup also as an artist. You don't know when you're coming into a room what it's going to be. If you're okay with that unknown <laughs> and wearing that jacket of the unknown, you're going to be all right. And one thing is, is that even in my position now, I don't take it for granted at all, and I'm also like, well, I better buy this now because I might not have it later. <laughs> you know, that's what I, I'm like. Okay, I will get this couch. At least I'll have a couch, or I can sleep in my car, which um, which is also because I came up, I came up very very poor. You know, I stood in a lot of lines for government G's, yeah. and um, I'm always ready just in case I might have to do that. There's a lot
1: of off-grid experimental communities around here. This is BC, after all. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So we just happen to have a recent graduate of the theater program right here. And uh, let's see if, if she has a question to
0: ask, Sam. Oh, boy. <laughs> Putting me on the spot here. <laughs> Hi, I'll just quickly introduce myself. I'm Samantha Walters. I work here in the Community Engagement Office, and I'm also a freelance performance maker in Vancouver. Yeah, I guess I've been very entrenched in the program for the past four years as well. And I've had these conversations with you and others uh, similarly. But I'm curious of your insight of like why training performers matters now. So I think that's a question I get a lot of of being a performance maker is why right now when there's so much going on?
2: Mm, That's a good question. I think I question that all the time, even this this sort of piece that I'm making now with the students next spring called uh, Strange Joy, which is, and I think in every work that piece that I do, I question, here we are, we're going into these sort of lower depths of spaces where we collaborate and we make work and the outside world is raging and in turmoil. But I think that, that what we do matters, that it brings us together, that we are privileged to practice collaboration every single day, which is amazing, but it's also, thank God we do that because we bring that back out into the world. We understand how we can have a dialogue and how to collaborate even in this office and beyond. And I think that empathy that you have to have to be a artist and that truth, or at least to understand that, that there's many perspectives to the truth and what is the truth, expands into all that we do and all that we encounter inside of the walls of academia and outside. And that voice matters in in the minute exchanges that we have at a dinner party or the minute exchanges on the bus or or in a rehearsal room changes our ability to listen to one another. And I think that at the heart of what we do is listening. If it's not listening to the elements with which that creates a live performance, it's listening to one another. And I think that is is vital and important and art can change and bring us together and it can bring politics into the room and change it with one piece of work i think i hope
1: <laughs> i was going to ask you about your upcoming projects if you could um share a little bit about what you're what you're working on now
2: well i i will s- just talk really quickly about the project I'm working on with the students. It's called Strange Joy and it's um, inspired by um, a film crew making a film off of Francois Truffaut's Day for Night and sort of the behind the scenes, but, you know, about creating. (laughs) Um, So I'm kind of really fascinated about looking at those meta layers between theater and film and that vocabulary and also the landscape of one's mind, what that looks like on stage while creating. It's quite mad, but it also has that film vocabulary of cutting between close-up, the wide, and the medium, long shot, and using that vocabulary in, in, a thia- in a theater. So I'm working on that with the students next spring at the main stage, and we have three months to make it. <laughs> we're crazy. Um, so there's going to be a lot of live feed, pre-recorded material, and we're looking at behind the scenes. and And in this case, there's no off stage so it's all on. And so what's that mean once they come off a scene and there's a documentary crew right at them? I'm ex- That's a piece that I've been working on for a while with professional actors and have been writing it, but now how to adapt it with students and and to um, have them come in and, and also write with me and make the work. And then I'm working on I just worked on a piece called Homeland, which was um, a collaboration with Begat Theater and Hand to Mouth Theater Company from Portland. And we took two years to write write and work over Zoom, which I thought I was just going uh, <laughs> to... That was hard. And four different writers on it. That was developed and it was a site-specific piece about questions about home displacement and land and... Um, we did the first version in Portland Oregon recently in September so i'll be going to france to work on it there next spring again a site specific piece and audiences have headphones and and walk into sort of temporary shelter and listen to the voice and the land with which that where that shelter is it's a very tricky work and to define what home is and land is it brings up many sad things that have existed over over time and where we are at now. And obviously with displacement being a primary theme to the work, as we see um, with the climate change and war, those stories coming to the forefront and... How you can't edit all of those stories down to... A co- it's really hard to edit stories down to one or two to define that. And I'm um, working on another piece is called Traces that um, Ivan Talianchich, my um, co-artist and director of Wax Factory, uh, based on Sophie Call's work. Um, also a site-specific piece where you follow Sophie Call through the streets. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Oh, and um, I'm I'm working on a... I'm writing on a script... Um, but I'm not going to say what it is <laughs> <laughs> yet.
1: Yeah. Eric, I know that you uh, brought something to read as well. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share.
2: Yeah. Oh, so I don't. You know, I don't know why I I brought this poem. Uh, this was at the Academy of Solitude, which I highly recommend for young artists. I think you have to be 35 and under, unfortunately, so I no longer count. But you give it a residency and Stuttgart of all places and to th- think about your work and to, to develop your work there and you don't have to produce anything. It's just the development phase. And there, at one point they had asked us, you know, what is a word that, that's in your language that is an unwieldy word that you can't define? So I came so I used I thought of the word ache and I think this sort of dif- sort of looks at what you were asking me actually about how does the outside world influence your work the environment and what is the creative process as well it's both oddly this this new piece I'm working on it's also strange and it's also joyful but it's also you are faced with all of the questions of your time. And so this piece is an old one. (laughs) So I'm a little nervous to read it, but it maybe kind of sums up my interest as an artist, sort of this, what's in the landscape of, of one's mind and how do you show that on stage too. So, okay. It's called Egg. White birds dipped in ink, open field of thought, a train waiting to go home. The last sentence searching for the next. Everything I am not. The forest burns in order to see it clear again. Again, white birds dipped in ink. Oil spill of the mind. Holding shifting versions of an architect's madness left behind. Blackout into day. Violence keep your hum down. Destroying what you cannot see. At best an idea will come round. Stretch your soul before me. You're looking pretty good. Ration the rational and everything is fine and understood. Oh, shifter, pacemaker, double incision, pull the stitches out and stop pretending. You don't know any more than I. It's all ridiculous and insane. We are spinning round and round, stargazing, mind twisters of an unknown hurricane. The saviour is runnin' and even the soil you will lie in is polluted. The grave digger already dug his own. You're standing naked, history was written. Start again, fool. It's all working fine, we're movin' in time, then drop your body in. But that will come later. What will you do with me now, now that youth has visited, stroll in the park? Turn out the light when the memories go dark. What will you do once you begin? Unplug the machine when the pain is too great. Does I love you mean I end with you? The last chapter in the book, the last shot with no sound. Turn the pages gracefully then and settle in. My darling, do you want another gin? call it what you want but it ain't clear keep the rib cage for a souvenir the mind spins in reverse hold the fragments joy rider with your trembling left hand now go forward if you can make an outline in perfect order remind me of who i am again ache drop your body in
1: Erica, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar.
2: Thank you
0: for having me. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to this episode with Erica Latta. To learn more about Erica's multidisciplinary performance group, The Wax Factory, or her other theatrical works and endeavors, check the show notes below. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SFU underscore VOCE to stay up to date on our newest podcast releases. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.